Welcome to Making Sense of Complexity, featuring conversations with complexity science practitioners and philosophers. Our goal is to share insights on how to make sense of our complex and uncertain world. Today our guest is Sam Barton, host of the Talk of Today podcast and product lead at Idea Market, a virtual marketplace of ideas. Sam's focus is on what complexity science can contribute to questions in moral and political philosophy. Here we go. Sam, welcome to uh, Making Sense of Complexity. Uh, really glad to have you as a, as a guest on, uh, on the podcast. Um, I had the opportunity to meet you last November at a Complexity Weekend session, and uh, I was immediately uh, in, uh, excited and impressed by um, your particular interest in uh, kind of the crossover between science and, and philosophy. Um, so welcome, welcome to the show. Thanks, George. Great to be here. So uh, I'd like to start just by asking my guests, um, you know, where they're calling in from and, and what the weather's like. Yeah, well, I am calling in from Sydney, Australia. Um, I'm quite close to the beach and the weather is, well, right now it's not raining, but it was raining quite heavily just before. and. The rain has been unceasing. We have basically had torrential downpours for the past few months, and when we do, when the sun does come out, uh, it is quite an event. So much so that my partner and I, we stop work and we go outside and sit in the sun and do work later yeah. on because we just have not seen the sun in a while. So yeah. That, yeah, that sounds a little bit more like Seattle in the U.S. than it does Australia. We think of Australia as a very sunny climate, and I guess this is a an indicator of some changing patterns. Yeah, well, we've got La Nina, um, so I think that's the big driver here. Um, but it is uncharacteristic of Sydney. We've had more than our year's worth of rain already. Yeah, yeah. Well, I hope it gets a little bit better for you and you get a chance to get outside. Um, so uh, let's start by just uh, giving us a little bit about your background. What drew you into complexity science as an area of interest? Yeah, um, I've got a, a bit of a varied background, I guess. Um, I've always been interested in science. I wanted to study science at university, um, but I ended up working in, um, you could say, tech companies, startups. But the interest of science has always been there. And I started a podcast um, in 2017 while I was at uni, basically uh, to exercise my curiosity. I realized that through podcasts, you can have conversations with amazing people. Um, and if you ask them to jump on and talk to you for two hours about their favorite thing, uh, a lot of them will do so. And that was a remarkable uh, thing for me to discover. So I would read someone's book and uh, it would be on you know anything, any scientific topic um, or anything to do with science, technology, whatever. And um, I would get them on the show and speak to them about whatever it is they were up to. And one of my guests, I think his name was Kari Bam, I can't, I can never pronounce his last name. Kari Bamaya. He was actually, a, he wrote one of the early books on blockchain, but he was also interested in complex systems. So I think I got my first introduction there. And a mutual friend of ours, um, who was also on the podcast, um, I think he was my first podcast interview. He's an economist, uh, Brendan Markey Towler. He gave me a, a book recommendation, and that book was The Origins of Wealth. And I think it was that book that really opened up the world of complexity to me. And what I like so much about it is that it is, I would say, the 
the science or the the mode of thinking which lends itself best to a generalist uh, because it incorporates so many different um, there are so many components to it um, that make lots of problems in different in very in, in what you would consider to be disparate areas amenable to mm. being solved with with this toolkit um, so I do so think before of myself you go on, as a, bit of a generalist so yeah, yeah. yeah just wanted to ask you that podcast is is a talk of today right that's correct. Talk and to yeah. uh, people can find it on podcast apps or or, uh, or look up the website. Is it uh, what's the website? Is it talk? Of yeah, Today? you can f talk of today.com or Sam H. Barton dot uh, com. They both go basically to the same place. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. yeah. And, and if I've, you're into uh, science, tech, philosophy. Yeah. I've listened to a couple of episodes and they they are great. Uh, really a wide range of topics and characters. And and it's interesting as well that that's one of the features I'm hearing about complexity science. I mean, you you touched upon some really very disparate things, you know, blockchain and and uh, and then economics and, uh, and, you know, social issues, you know, how these things fit together is one of the reasons complexity science seems to have that very broad crossover cross-fertilization uh, feature to it is that do i get that right yeah yeah definitely and <clears throat> while the topics do seem disparate to me a lot of the conversations i have are connected in ways that that well, i see them to be connected and i guess a part of the i i have like a a little the the podcast i found is a way for me to try to seed a worldview in the minds of regular listeners because i see them as all connected and i have like a uh, it's not propaganda, but it's like, here's some really interesting stuff. Here are some, here is how I think these ideas fit together uh, to create a picture of a world that is and that could be. And uh, yeah, that's, that's what I yeah. have uncovered or discovered that the podcast is. Yeah, that's what got me so excited because I have that same you know, interest in figuring out how, how do, um, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to digress a lot, but my sense was coming out of the 19th and, and into the 20th century, there was this optimism about science having all the answers and the theory of everything and logic, and, and it just all fell apart in the 20th century. And part of what's coming out of it is the issue of complexity and how all these, how all these fields, whether you're talking physics or mathematics or, uh, uh, or biology or sociology or economics, all all have some of these same uh, features, and it's very different than what we might have thought was going to be the case a hundred years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's so I'm very excited life. about it. Yeah, I'm excited about it, and glad to glad to have you. So um, let's start. You, there are two aspects that you've been working on that I find particularly interesting, and so I wanted to touch base with uh, with you on both of them. And the first is the um, the work you're doing with a a startup called Idea Market, and maybe you could just give us a quick intro of Idea Market and um, kind of what it's based on and where where that uh, enterprise hopes to get. Yep, yep. So Idea Market is a literal marketplace of ideas, um, which we we can unpack, uh, and that's that is built on the Ethereum blockchain. So the Ethereum blockchain is one of the most popular crypto projects out there, and it is effectively a global computer. And the purpose of Idea Market is to try and 
bring the world's attention to ideas and people that we really should be paying more attention to uh, because right now our attention is somewhat fractured um, and is not really being applied in areas or our attention is not being directed to areas that we really should be paying attention to like the threat of um, potential uh, civilizational collapse this century mm -hmm. or potential extinction and we're just focusing on a whole bunch of other things mm -hmm. so the general purpose is to um, add greater signal to the noise um, of the cacophony that is the internet and help people make better sense of the world by tapping into the computational capacity of the market mm -hmm. and applying that to sense making so let me back up a second and just ask you why is it important that this is uh, based upon a blockchain technology or a crypto type technology which you know also it comes out of complexity science but in ter terms of the complexity of mathematics and mathematical structures and and setting setting algorithms in place that have uh, you know password protection that can't be broken so yeah. how does blockchain play into this yeah so the simplest way you can think of a blockchain uh, is it's a massive distributed database um, and something that makes it um, very, very important, not from like the perspective of making money, but I see, I see blockchain, crypto, Web3, however you want to refer to it, as a incredibly uh, important technology for the improvement of our social lives, uh, for the improvement of, you know, for the securing of human rights, uh, for ensuring that people have access to basic freedoms. Um, and one of those, one of the things about um, many blockchain projects is that they are permissionless, that people can access and interact with the blockchain without anyone saying that they can or cannot. Um, and because idea market is playing in the realm of information, um, identifying what sorts of information it is, is it's playing in the, in the realm of information, but trying to empower people to uh, identify which sources of information or which information itself is valuable. Um, that's a very important topic today as it has always been misinformation propaganda these things feature heavily in our lives and perhaps we're only becoming more and more aware of it today uh, so by making so blockchain is effectively necessary uh, for this project because it is censorship resistant we you can't mm. stop someone from participating in the on the network you can't stop right. someone from sharing certain information yeah, and that's a critical, you know, critical social issue of the day. We we talk about that all the time. And the part of the problem is there's so much information coming at us from all sorts of different directions. And the question is, well, how do you know it's true? How do you know? How do you know who to trust? And you know, the old ways of trusting information just doesn't work anymore when there's so much of it and it's coming from all all different directions. So, so how is idea market? different you know the old in the old structure that we had f filters you know journalists and government officials you know or experts in certain fields and and that then we sort of had processes i guess that for them to be filtered out so we could trust the information that was coming to us now that seems to be gone so how does how does idea mm -hmm. market address that well i just say you know you say we could trust that information Right, sort of that, that we that we were getting from our from these authorities, and the authorities could be universities, um, 
universities, governments, uh, journalists, and we thought that we could trust them, but I think what the advent of the internet has done has made us realize that we can't actually trust these authorities as much as we first thought we could. Um, the, you know, maybe at the grand scale of things, they, they might be uh, correct in certain ways, particularly in the sciences. Like that is where, you know, the proof is in the pudding. But when it comes to matters of governance and, um, you know, just more general public, uh, what's, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, public interest matters. Maybe we can't trust them as much. And I think this was made really apparent over the past decade. Um, you know, the, we, the internet came around, and I think it was the 80s, but it really hit its stride in the you know, 2000s and, you know, the 2010s, really, when everyone had a mobile phone in their pockets. Mm -hmm. And with COVID uh, in particular, we realized that the information that's being disseminated from these institutions, which we thought we could trust, um, might not actually be as uh, honest or as truthful as we had anticipated. And that's not to say that um, they are knowingly reporting things that are false. They may be reporting things that they think are true, but we end up discovering are false. Mm -hmm. um, so we have realized recently that the existing sense-making apparatus, you could say, for our globally interconnected society is outdated and needs to be updated and the reason why you could say it's like not up to the not up to the challenge at the moment is because these uh, institutions are s severely limited they don't have that many people involved with no. um, actually making sense of the world and then disseminating that information um, they lack you could say like from a complex systems perspective like the computational capacity to um, process all the information that's being um, piped in through the internet, um, triaging it, making sense of which, uh, you know, which information should we mm -hmm. pay more attention mm -hmm. to, which should we pay less attention to, and then distributing that to the rest of the world. Yeah. And this doesn't sound like, a, you know, it doesn't sound too bad, it, perhaps, but I do see this as an existential issue. Um, organisms live and die by the um, information they acquire and integrate and act upon. Um, and the same is true for societies. And at the moment, we face existential threats, the likes of which we have never seen before. And mm -hmm. some people put the risk of us going extinct at about uh, this century, yeah. like an existential event happening this century at about one in six. Um, that's Toby Ord's book, The Precipice, a philosopher at the University of Oxford. Some people put that risk at, e at e even higher. Now, if you were to talk to 100 people on the street, um, you know, in a developed world, uh, in, in you know, a more developed country like Australia, for instance, I would say that 99 people would have never have heard that statistic. Mm. Um, but we are talking about the future of our civilization here. Um, perhaps the future of life in the cosmos, who knows? Um, so there is obviously a huge issue with our ability to integrate information into our uh, societies and act upon it and you know, unfortunately, or fortunately, you know, the, there's a, the, the ideas that animate a society um, are truly the difference between life and death. Um, and I think I'm making, you know, making it seem to be way bigger, a way bigger problem than it actually is. But I, I, I truly believe this. So mm -hmm. what Idea Market seeks to do is rather than rely upon these epistemic authorities, uh, these, these severely limited authorities, um, by just, just by limited by the nature of their constitution, what idea market seeks to do is to tap into the power, in, into the awareness, into the genius of the entire world, into to, to tap into the the perceptions of uh, the people on the front lines, you could say, of 
of a whole variety of different um, fields. And to empower people to go out there and say, you know what, I think this idea is important, or I think we need to pay more attention to this for X, Y, Z reasons. And then to allow that idea to get amplified through the power of the market mm-hmm. um, by yeah. creating a marketplace of ideas where people can truly invest in, so put money towards and buy tokens for specific ideas or their promoters, their promulgators, the people who are championing these ideas, um, we can align the profit motive with uh, sense-making, with um, ha- having a better model of reality, with, with yeah. credibility. With credibility, yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. So I want to take a, I want to take a quick little step back because I had Daniel Friedman on the show and uh, he was talking about uh, ant colonies and and we talked about the fact that that the ants themselves don't don't have a huge computational capacity, but the ant colony with the combined interactions of all of those not very smart ants can generate a much higher level of intelligence. It's kind of uh, out of the working of the individuals in that context of the colony, you end up with a much higher level of intelligence. So that's a little bit what you're talking about, right? Each each individual or the institutions that are coming out with the information and putting it out in the internet, you know, how much do they know? How broad is their knowledge? Can you really rely on them to know everything? No, they can't know everything, but now, if you can create a system with idea market where that becomes part of a collective computational process through the applications of the of the technology, the distributed technology, the fact that nobody's nobody's censoring, but people are making their choices, and then you're hoping that what emerges out, out of this is really a higher level of credibility and intelligence and reliable information. Is that, do I kind of have that right? A thousand percent. Yeah. The end goal <clears throat> is to develop a credibility layer for the internet, really. So when you're coming across information on, online, if you're going through Twitter or Facebook, there is an indicator on that, um, on that piece of information that says, you know, I, maybe not a credibility score, but there's some sort of information that can provide you with uh, a better understanding about how much yeah attention should you pay to that information or that source? Yeah, and, yeah. I, you know, I just to run off one of those points, um, I've been trying to write an essay about all this to try to capture this. And I kind of think that we live in idea communism at the moment, or we have done for a long time, but we have just a few institutions, a few centralized institutions responsible for the, um, the collective narrative, what everyone believes. Um, and now I see this move towards the marketization of information um, or, it's not it's not quite that but just by tapping into enabling the these narratives to be created from the the market itself through this collective computation um as the move towards um mm. capitalism um and I, I do i think i do think there's an analogy there mainly from the computational capacity uh, from the computational perspective um because, like why does capitalism work why are people in um countries that use I don't want to say capitalism, to be honest. I'd just rather say market economies. Why do market economies Mm -hmm. perform so well? It's because because they're tapping into the supercomputers between the ears of uh, billions of people. Like, Mm -hmm. that's why. Mm -hmm. These are are little computers. Right, and each each individual decision may not be that critical, and the person making a decision may not have a lot of information. But if you add up all of those uh, pieces, of all those decisions across a, a free market where 
you have equal information among buyers and sellers and you know free exchange and uh, then you're going to get the emergence of that higher intelligence it's the whole concept of the free markets from Adam Smith you know his invisible hand and beyond mm -hmm. um, so it's it strikes me that uh, I, I like what you said a little earlier and I'm thinking back you know who used to tell us how to make sense right well, was the priest you know, and then it was the emperor, and then it was the political apparatus, and and uh, and then you know it started to loosen up. So now we had science entering the fray, and then it became you know the top scientists, and we revere Nobel Prize winners and great professors, and so there's that. And then it was also media, and what you're pointing out is that with the internet and global society, whatever structure contributed to those being useful and valuable to us has been obliterated by the, the cacophony of information that's just overwhelming. Yeah, and it's the, the, it's the, you know, the amount of information that's out there, but it's also the fact that the incentives that drive a lot of these, um, these epistemic authorities are not aligned with the truth. They're right. not aligned with developing right. an accurate model of the world. I mean, right. advertising, uh, has always you know that's the source of uh, of, of revenue for, for many of these uh, organizations mm -hmm. uh you know th these media organizations um and the the governments they are unfortunately from what it appears to be uh, you know it appears they appear to be more interested in getting reelected and maintaining some sort of status quo or you know ensuring that their friends at the you know the fossil fuel companies are happy to you know keep you know paying for their campaigns or whatever Rather than actually dealing with um, the reality that we are faced with, yeah. um, or the, re the the many realities that we are faced with, yeah. so uh, yeah, it's um it's a project that I am it is my favorite crypto project, and I jumped on board only after interviewing Mike, um, the CEO, on the podcast because I saw they were hiring. I'm like, this is the greatest project in the entire yeah. world. Um, I would love to help out. So. Uh where do we go if we're interested in finding out about it or maybe making some picks for who we think is credible? Yeah, um, go to ideamarket.io um, and it is, so you do need to jump through a few hoops because it is on crypto. It's not as easy as plugging in your credit <clears throat> card and you know getting started. It is very early days um, with this technology and idea market, though um, there are plenty of tutorials that you can uh, go through to basically start uh, participating on the market and it's, mm -hmm. it's not too complicated but if you know 10 minutes 15 minutes of your time um and if, you know if you've never bought ethereum um or if you never bought any cryptocurrency i think this is a, a great place to a great place to start and this is one of the features of a, of a of a complex dynamic system is you don't necessarily know where it's going to go and you just get this thing started and it will evolve and advance and perhaps at some point in the future it will actually be what you hope it is and that is a true marketplace of ideas where people value it mm. on the basis of how how good it is not you know what it's worth in in dollars yeah good luck yeah i mean it, it, thank you thank you yeah good luck uh, so that was exciting i want to shift gears and talk about another project that i know you're you're working on and that is um kind of the the ethical implications that you feel flow from some of the things you've learned in complexity science. And so uh, ex explain that. How, how is ethics, this very human 
uh, concept of, you know, what's right and what's wrong. You know, how do you see that maybe flowing out of the science of complexity? Yeah, um, so I will just like flag that I'm by no means an expert. I'm an amateur in everything that I do, um, but I have done a little bit of study in philosophy and I was considering doing a PhD, um, but I might just postpone that for a while and do this on the side personally. Um, but I will do my best to try to construct, to try to paint a picture of um, what I see to be the connection between science and morality. Um, I do think that um, right and wrong, good and evil, uh, all these words, um, I do think that they can be explained. Um, I, I, I do think that they can be explained in terms of what is going on in the world. And when I say, what I mean by that is stuff. Like, what is it about certain arrangements of matter that make them better than others? Like, what is it about certain actions and the impacts those actions have on the world, on stuff that makes those actions right or wrong? Um, so, you know, when, when we think about right and wrong, we think about, uh, you know, murder is wrong. Why is murder wrong? Well, intuitively, we just kind of know that there's something wrong with it, right? Like the act of killing feels barbarous, mm. um, at least in most instances. You know, if there's a war, um, maybe not so much. So, but that's interesting, right? So like the fact that there are some instances where these things are permissible um, and there are some instances where they're not. So what, it is, what is it about these, these different circumstances um, and the way I think about them is in these two worlds, you have um, th these, the, the world where killing is okay and the world where killing is not okay. They, those two worlds are literally just collections of atoms that are arranged in a certain way. And there is something about the arrangement of those atoms that makes that action good or bad. Um, so if that's the case, I'm, I was, I've just been thinking, okay, well, what is it about the information associated with these instances that make it right or wrong? Um, and I've been curious about how can we um, explore this question for, in a way that um, is not anthropocentric. Um, like I'm interested in what is objectively um, morally true or morally good um, and the questions of whether or not objective ethics or objective moral principles could be real aside. I don't want to get into this meta-ethical discussion. I just kind of assume that they are. Um, um, but we, we can get into that maybe uh, another time. So, yeah, so the question is, what is it about stuff, the way stuff is organized? Yeah. And how do we do this in a way that is not anthropocentric? Um, I can keep on running if you, I, I can keep talking unless you have a question. Uh, no, I think that's good. I want to, I want to hear more. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, it's prudent when, we're dealing with these sorts of questions about what is objectively right or wrong to try to do is do away with um, our anthropocentric biases, right? Because our moral intuitions, if you take a hard, like a, you know, evolutionary or Darwinian mm -hmm. perspective, our moral intuitions have uh, emerged, they have evolved over the course of millions of years, and they have done so in a way that promotes our fitness. Mm -hmm. The only reason why we have moral intuitions is not because they are tracking some underlying objective moral good. All they do is um, ensure that we survive. Um, and this is a bit of a problem. Like this is actually a, a bit of an issue. It doesn't, 
if, if you take this perspective, you, can, you, you might think oh, all moral, all, all morality is uh, associated with just ensuring our species survives, and therefore we can't make you know grand sweeping statements about right. what we, how we right. feel. Right, and that's that's the way people interpret you know Darwin as the survival of the fittest. Okay, so if that if if survival is your thing, you know and you know fittest most competitive most aggressive most this most that you know that's how you survive well that doesn't sound like a very good principle to to stand on when you want to say what's morally good no no and what's interesting is like we can't appeal to intuitions for a few reasons one is that like there's this evolutionary argument that, that kind of just knocks it down but also that intuitions vary quite a great degree between people um and cultures um so if you you can't just appeal to you can't you can't just say intuition because if you look across cultures intuitions vary to dramatic degrees and even within populations mm-hmm. um, and we know that a, that a lot of this is genetic that it's actually based upon you know the the, the biological blueprint that um, dictates how we kind of um, are brought yeah. into this world that actually reminds um, me of a of a book by Nicholas Christakis it's called Blueprint Blueprint yeah. uh, about the uh, the physiological basis of our our evolutionary process has resulted in a certain set of attributes that are positive for the social uh, instincts of the animal or the social suite that that allows us to kind of get along and, and do things and and uh, <clears throat> the other book that comes to mind is uh, uh, Jonathan Haidt's Haidt's book on uh, the righteous mind where he says yeah we're we're we are Different people in different cultures and different societies have a different trajectory in which they have arisen, and they will have different intuitive senses of right and wrong. And he does some analysis trying to figure out what the what the what the continuums are that people are on from a moral sense. But so so you're pointing out that the intuitive base that we usually rely on for making moral judgments isn't as necessarily very reliable. So you're looking for something else. Yeah. So yeah, what is it? Maybe if we just you know, rather than looking at the yeah, basically yes, yes. And what I have come so rather than like looking at what people do, uh, if we kind of just assume that life is good, perhaps we can see something that's consistent across all life forms. And the, there is one thing that is consistent across all life forms, and that is just the need to exist, like the need to perpetuate across time. So all living organisms, they. Um, like we, if we would just bring this to physics just a little bit, um, you know, we live in a world that's governed by uh, the second law of thermodynamics. Um, you know, the fact that everything, like the entire universe, is tending towards a state of disorder. Now, living organisms are really um, thermodynamically uh, unique or special uh, systems because rather than um, decay to disorder, uh, they are incredibly complex, um, low entropy uh, states or arrangements of matter that are able to persist across time. And all living organisms, regardless of whichever ones we're thinking of, um, they, they do this. Like That is the process of living. The process of living is, you know, um, it, at least ensuring that there is um, systemic continuity across time so that the living organism can go and do stuff and procreate, right? Yeah. I want to um, back up for a second and, and bring in an analogy here, and that is that entropy... <clears throat> and the fact that the universe is running down, that's what the physicists you know, tell us, the second law of thermodynamics, is like a river, you know, going downstream. So it's pulling everything down, you know, everything is, 
entropy is increasing and disorder is increasing and you know so everything is moving in that direction life is like the fish that are swimming upstream because they're they're yes they're subject to entropy and they get old and they decay and all that stuff but it they are also building systems and structures and complexity and bringing energy in and using that energy to thrive and to grow and to procreate that's all going against the stream of entropy so mm -hmm. it's like all of this life is going upstream yeah and there's as we've seen over the past you know billion years or so however long life has been on earth that the organ like life living organisms tend to be getting more and more complex so the entropy seems to be getting lower and lower um so if we were to bring this if we were to, so all living organisms try to well, what they do is minimize entropy locally so that they can continue across time like to put it in a you know very very simple yeah, snapshot and and, uh, and they do that uh they do that i know there's a concept of uh dissipative adaptation in other words they sort of export entropy to the world around them by you know by organizing the flow of energy or the flow of information to their own to their own benefit yeah, yeah, yeah. So like the net effect is always a, a net increase in entropy in the universe. Um, but so living organisms, they take energy and process it, maintain um, their low entropy state and export the, uh, the entropy externally, which also has implications for things like climate change and how we, you know, perpetuate life on Earth itself. But we don't need to get into that right now. Um, so. Uh, so that's and that, by the way, is one of the fundamental features to my mind of, of complex dynamic systems that, that seem to self-organize and, uh, and, and be efficient, you know, be stable structures that are efficiently managing this flow, whatever it is, information or energy or turbulence, they're, they're managing that flow and essentially going upstream against it, getting more complex, getting more diverse, uh, getting better at collecting information, getting better at processing information. So this is all that the stuff that life does, right? Well, and just to like touch on that, this ties back into what we were speaking about with um, idea market, right? Um, you know, the ability to sense and process and act upon information is critical for all. Like all living organisms do it. All living organisms are these informational, or that they are engaging in a form of computation, and. You know, you could think of the one of the limiting factors for uh, the survival of a species is the amount of information it can process mm. and act upon. Um, you know, because as you go up in increasing levels of complexity or in scale, there's more and more information to process. There's more and more problems to come across. So, like an increase in computation is actually necessary to um, achieve uh, to to deal with these new to deal with the new problems that we encounter at new levels of scale. So, mm -hmm. you know, it might be absolutely necessary that we have, um, comp uh, we have artificial intelligence, we have general artificial intelligence, because the amount of information that we are dealing with at this um, global technologically empowered scale that we find ourselves in, we, we will probably need these forms of AI right. to, to um, yeah. go there. And it, I digress. Just take it back to the example of little creatures and you know bacteria or or even you know the humans in the paleolithic jungle you'd better comp do your computation right get the right answer about what that noise was or what that uh, what that uh, impulse is because if you get it wrong you're dead 
Yeah. So, so the idea about becoming better at computing and getting better at it is that if you do it wrong, you're, you know, you're potentially going to make mistakes. And you point out in, in the idea market conversation that, yeah, our, our civilization is there. We're making some bad mistakes that are heading in the wrong direction. We're not making the right kind of computational decisions collectively. So, mm. you know, idea market is a way to try and change that and, and make those decisions. So now let's, let's get back to good. Yeah, get the, the nature of the good. <laughs> um, yeah, so all organisms are engaged in this uh, dance, this this activity of they're all engaged in making sure that entropy themselves, like because they are ordered systems, they're trying to minimize uh, their local entropy so that they continue to survive and, and do all this sort of stuff. And if we think of life as good in general, um, and all organisms are engaged in this sort of activity, then we might be able to say that... Um, low entropy systems uh, or that the presence of like, low entropy may be an indicator of the good because if we if we return back to our intuitions i know they're hard to um we might not be able to trust them as much but they do act as they do corroborate this perspective um so you know how if you see if you know the more senses you look at something with the more you can believe it's real uh you know if you see an elephant and you touch an elephant and then you if it sounds like an elephant if it smells like an elephant if you have all these things that are corroborating the um the perspective that this elephant exists you know you're more likely to believe it mm -hmm. um so if we look to our intuitions about low entropy systems and whether or not we think that lower entropy systems are more valuable ethically valuable um, that seems to be the case yeah. uh so the more intelligent a species is, or the bigger a species is, like an elephant or a dolphin or a whale, we think of those as um, ethical being. We think of those as living organisms which have such a high level of ethical value that killing them is an atrocious thing to do. Um, that you know people will protest against whaling or um, against the, the killing of um, uh, elephants, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, they don't care so much about mice. Like we are happy to run all of these experiments on mice uh, for the betterment of our uh, civilization, right? Mice don't matter so much. Um, cockroaches or insects, like we are, we buy things from the grocery store which we use to exterminate these creatures <clears throat> because we, you know, they annoy us. So that we do have this intuitive feeling about um, th these different, the, the different levels of. Yeah. So I, one thing I just want to highlight that each of the the, the entropy level of each of these organisms is different like an insect has a higher entropy or is less ordered than uh, an elephant which is probably less ordered than a whale or a dolphin well that's interesting and it, it's also uh it's also the case that our uh our attitudes about some of those uh creatures like insects has been changing bees for example you know the the crisis of uh of bees and and um uh, yeah, colony collapse, I guess, is what it's called. You know, potentially because of you know environmental contaminants, now threatens the ecosystem related to the pollinators that rely on pollinators and the plant community, and that's the food that we eat. And so now, our survival is threatened by practices that threaten the bees. So, so there seems to be a lot more attention being paid to things like bees and bee colonies you know these are insects mm -hmm. that maybe in the past were, were viewed as, as less valuable but they're integrated in nature and the ecosystem and the the intelligence that's built into the hive structures is now something that we're paying a little bit more attention to 
Yeah, so, and like yeah. we could say, you know, they're valuable because you could say their value is instrumental because it, you know, it relates to our survival. I don't know how I feel about that distinction between instrumental and um well, we can talk uh, about intrinsic. we could talk about that someday, but I, I want to yeah, that's, impo- I, that's I, important. I do wanna, that's important. Yeah, yeah, I do want to touch on this point because it's I don't think it's as simple as you know a low entropy system is ethical. I don't think it's that simple at all because of the fact that our entire world is inherently relational. These things do not exist in isolation. Um, ecosystems are in like they are mm-hmm. just. Uh, you know, we, we think of the food web. They are just so they, there are more connections between things than we even know of. Um, yep. So to say that something is valuable because it has low entropy, like that's not really the case mm-hmm. um, because of the way the, the systems interact. Though you could say the there may be um, a, a correlation or, or something between the ethical valuableness of a system and its um, and its entropy. But like I'm talking like a grand system, so perhaps like the Earth itself, Gaia, for instance. Yeah. Perhaps that's the appropriate scale of um, resolution to, yeah. to look at this yeah. from. The problem with the problem with looking at things instrumentally is that it, that's a very limited focus. Like what's in it for me, but that is part of a system. The, the system of of insects is connected to the system of the ecology. The system of the ecology is connected to the to the uh, system of plant production, plant production feeds, you know, the world, not just humans, but the rest of the world as well. And so if you start thinking about those endless, endless connections, those network connections across this whole creative enterprise of, of life and the earth and the universe, now you, you can't look at anything just instrumentally because everything's connected to everything else. Yeah, yeah, it's... It's right, so, uh, so back know, to the, the hippies back were to, right. The hippies were right. <laughs> the hippies were right. Back to the the value, the ethical consideration that comes out of this finding that uh, lower entropy systems, more advanced, more complex, more interconnected, more more highly computationally oriented, more capacity. So so uh, let's see if you can draw this draw us into that ethical concept. Yeah. Well, we think about. So one of the dominant perspectives, at least in, like I'm a, an effective altruist, you could say, um, and if the general idea being that we want to do good in the world and we have limited resources, so how do we do as much good as possible? It's quite an inherently utilitarian perspective, right? Um, and the idea is that we should be maximizing the well-being of sentient beings. Um, and I think that's great. I really do. But I do see that um, the experience of sentient beings the experience of animals, of organisms, of, of, of organisms like us or like chimpanzees and all that is dependent upon our capacity to extract energy from the environment, to process it, to take information in, to process it, to process it and act in certain ways. Um, and I don't know, I don't know quite how to put a bow on this because mm. it's still something I'm kind of um, yeah. exploring. And like, I don't that. think I'm the, I'm not the only person exploring this. Like, I don't think yeah. these are ideas like, I don't think I have a grand theory of everything or anything like that. I'm just, I don't see enough people talking about questions of right and wrong, um, about stuff in the world, about like linking it to physics. And I think we need to have a better, more of a conversation about that because I truly believe, I know, I just want to get this point out there. I do believe that this is how we can bridge religion and science. Like this is, I, I, I see religion as, um, stories, 
that explain how we can engage in this ongoing entropy minimization process because when everyone's like that's one point that we didn't really speak on mm -hmm. um that mm -hmm. the reason why we have uh like all our societies the rules that we follow the actions that we deem to be uh, right and wrong so stealing is wrong murdering is wrong adultery is wrong these things vary sometimes between cultures but the net effect is the preservation of local order in the society mm -hmm. so it's the actions that could lead that could lead to actions that could destabilize a society and result in you know um disorder uh chaos murder war whatever mm -hmm. those things are generally seen to be unethical and actions that preserve and promote the generation or that, that preserve and generate order local order they are good yeah. um so there is this direct mapping between um you know yeah low if entropy it's, if it's generational and positive and thriving it's it's contributing to lower en entropy if it's uh if it's uh aggressive or destructive or or uh you know it's actually increasing entropy and you know that's counter to the long-run goal of better survival more survival and and that's because that's what that's what light living systems are mm. are are compelled to do i did want to go back to one thing about moral intuition <clears throat> because a lot of things that are built into the human being are really shortcuts computational shortcuts because uh there's so much information that's available to to each of us perceptual information and too much to really process everything all the time so uh from a neurological perspective, we have to develop these shortcuts or heuristics to make better choices or make the right choices for our survival, for the survival of our mates, for the survival of our, our, of our species, for the survival of life. So those heuristics then come out of a set of experiences where we take these shortcuts. So we might not be able to explain exactly, but this is the way we feel about something. And I'm wondering if one avenue might be to look at what, uh, what those heuristics are actually pushing for. I think you, you said that you think the, these heuristics about moral intuition are actually uh, pointing to low entropy systems as better. And now, you know, a thousand years ago, 10,000 years ago, we didn't have the science to start looking at, we didn't even know what entropy was and all that sort of stuff. That's all modern science. So now we can use some tools of modern science and start looking at, all right, well, what, what is modern science saying about low entropy systems and thriving systems and, and, uh, and computational, increasing computational capacity? And does that map how does that map onto the heuristics that humans have, have had? So, um, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll play a little role here and say, okay, if you look at the, the Buddhist tradition of uh, 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 karma, the concept of karma and not injuring life because that's bad karma and you'll, you'll pay, you know, through your many, many subsequent lives. And then you look at the Christian principle of love the neighbor as yourself. So that's that's a principle based around love. It's a it's and so perhaps 
that's a heuristic for what the science of complexity can actually tell us of how we all get to a better place. Yeah, yeah, it's um, it's so exciting to be honest yeah. to see yeah. that these the things that we think of as innately <clears throat> human or that are in the spiritual realm in a way yeah. to be coming together with science. Like I see science as a spiritual enterprise, to be honest. It's about understanding the nature of reality and our place in it. And to see these things, or to at least get a glimpse of how these things can come together. And yeah. I, I do think that this could be the basis of a new religion, one that we actually might need, yeah. um, because we need to have a religion that is in accordance with the science, or we might just self-terminate. And that's not gonna right. be too much fun. The world, the universe is, we're just at the beginning of this bad boy. And I want to. we wanna see how this, uh, unfolds yeah and this this is uh, this gets to uh something that i've talked about sometimes and that is you know there's there's the concept of consilience where the different branches of science jump together that's eo wilson's you know what that term means is the jumping together of different forms of knowledge and complexity science is really at the heart of that disparate areas of science sort of jumping together with new new techniques and new methods and new knowledge and all of a sudden it fits you know where what's happening in physics and what's happening in and uh, in markets, economics, you know, it's telling the same story. Um, so yeah. complexity, complexity crosses those, those, uh, those boundaries. And, and um, yeah, I've just I actually about a week ago, I snagged consilience.substack.com because I'm thinking about writing just like a short little you know, some essays just bundled under this, like in, in this general um, field of in this general area. And think about getting other people to contribute and all that, because yeah, I yeah. think it uh, could be a bit of fun. And that's the, the, the grander consilience. The bigger one is not just the yeah. branches of science, but, you know, science and religion and science and, yeah, yeah, yeah. and science and, and, and meaning and purpose. You know, if those can jump together, then then uh, yeah. then you have a coherent whole, you know, and you can live a coherent, a coherent life. Yeah. Do you know who I think you should get on the show? I know like where you should definitely keep this in. Um, John Viveki, I think you should reach out to John Viveki if you're not familiar with his yeah, work. Yeah, I know I am um, familiar with John's work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and he's, yeah, he's struggling he with how, to, how do you create a new religion that works. It's, yeah. a, it's a big, uh, you know, and Alain de Botton is the same thing. He's a secularist and he started the school of life because he sees, mm. you know, somehow we got to get a, a philosophy embedded in people the way people, because right now each of us is kind of disintegrated into multiple different worlds it doesn't really make sense and then culture as a whole doesn't either so we need yeah. that consilient philosophy to pull it together and just to weave this back into like everything we've kind of just said it's like one of the big it all comes down to the like it all comes down to memes <laughs> and i don't mean memes in the internet sense you know a funny picture but memes <clears throat> in the dawkins sense um the ideas that animate us and our cultures are the most important things and what we're talking about these religions or these you know these philosophies they are memes or meme plexes they're just yeah. it's information that is living that's thriving and you know we are in a way um agents we are their agents we are their we are the the warriors or like the, unfortunately for better or for worse the memes control us we don't control them oh that's a good um, example because you were just using a meme about a sort of aggressive control or or you know in a way that uh, is contrary to what you were actually what this process is trying to achieve yeah you know, it's not about competition yeah. it's about collaboration how do we do that mm. yeah 
yeah. And it's more efficient. That's the great like oh, it's it all much more aligns. Like yeah. yeah, it's just yeah. it's beautiful. That, that's a yeah. great thing. Doing good is it like all the good everything that is good aligns and is like I I, I don't know how to quite say this, but um the good can never be bad, if that makes any sense whatsoever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um Oh, that's interesting. I, I uh I did have a conversation with Daniel Sanderson uh, uh, on the show earlier. I think it might be the, just the episode before, where uh, he talked as well about each of us is in a trajectory of past, you know, past, present, and future, and so we respond differently to different ideas and different memes because of the background that we have. And so, you know, the the, the question of narrative is how you construct a narrative, a set of ideas that can broadly appeal to people who are coming from widely different trajectories. Now, somehow the Buddha succeeded in doing that in some ways. You know, Jesus uh, was successful in doing that in some ways. And so even by looking at the history of those traditions, we can start thinking about, well, what does it mean to bring together now a consilience and understanding of science and philosophy and faith and pull it into something that can that everybody will, will resonate with everybody tough tough thing yeah to well i know that in the new bible whatever it looks like there will not be an equation at the top of the page you know maybe there'll be the appendices and theology will become the study of you know it'll be complexity science and all these other things coming together so that'd be like layers like onions yeah, yeah. there's this very superficial layer that you teach your four-year-old and then you get to the eight-year-old level and then you know you can do a yeah you're a scientist like yeah. at the end of the day it's just being a being yeah. a, a spiritual scientist um and even though it's got baggage like i think that's what it is well that's great and i i want to just change uh change the conversation a little bit to ask you some questions about your own history you know how you your trajectory how you got here did you grow up in a religious tradition of some sort no i, I was born catholic uh so I, I grew up all over the place i was born in australia and lived in singapore and malaysia and sri lanka um and i only even though i'm australian i only spent about four or five years in australia between the ages of zero and 19. Mm. Um, yeah. And I went to a Catholic school in Australia when I was about like one, two, like, uh, from years one, two, three, and four. So I would have been like from the age of five to eight. And I never really got in. I, w I went to church every now and again. I did my first communion, which is one of the, I don't really know much about it at all, but mm -hmm. I know that I didn't really buy into it. And, uh, yeah, I just never really yeah. got into it. I, but, I have but, prayed once or twice, but that was only when I was really worried <laughs> about something. I'm like, look, yeah, big man upstairs, if you are real, <laughs> if you are real, like I'm going to pray to you now, just in yeah. case. Well, that's that's Pascal's wager. You know, you, you don't <laughs> lose anything by praying, so you might gain yeah. something. Um, but that sounds like a very varied background. Did you did you have exposure in your travels to other other cultures, other religions? You know, sort of. Yeah, how did, yeah, yeah. How did you get? Uh, and how did you make sense of what what that experience was like for you? Yeah, the best. So, majority of my time is spent in Malaysia from when I was about eight to nineteen, and Malaysia is a wonderful country, and it's incredibly multicultural. Uh, more multicultural than like Australia is supposedly one of the 
these, you know, the, the famous uh, success stories of multiculturalism. And I don't think that's the case. I think Australia is far less multicultural than Malaysia. In Malaysia, you've got three main populations. There's the Chinese population, there's the Malay population, and then it's the Indian population. And there are different cultural events associated with each of the cultures, right? Um, you've got Chinese New Year, uh, with the Malays, you've got Ramadan, um, Indians, Deepavali. And because of the Western influence, you can just sprinkle in a bit of a bit of Christmas as well, you know, Easter and Christmas. So when I was there, I would experience, like I would go to my friend's house for Chinese New Year and um, spend sometimes a week with him, just going to open houses and uh, which is kind of a thing you do there and having dinner and listening to the firecrackers, watching the lion dances. Um, and same for uh, Ramadan or Hari Raya with my Malay friends. Um, and, you know, we'd learn about, I didn't really have as many Indian friends, didn't really engage too much in the uh, Indian cultural things, but the school I went to was an international school and we learned about all of these things. Um, and, you know, we would get holidays all the time and we'd learn about the, you know, what people were celebrating. Um, so I think that that upbringing and just seeing from a very young age that there is a plurality of ways in which you can approach life, that you can mm. see life um, and that, the school that I went to was one of, I, there were 65 nationalities represented and people of all colors, you know, like all the colors under the sun and religions and all that. And when you're in a place where everyone is different, everyone becomes the same. Uh, and that was sort of, that my upbringing was varied cultural backgrounds, varied national backgrounds, and just the overall humanness of each other, I think was something that really stood out to me. Um, and I think, I've always thought of myself, I mean, when you start asking these questions, I don't know when you start asking yourself these questions, but when I did start thinking about where I was from, I was thinking, well, you know, I'm more of a, a global citizen um, than anything. Um, and I think that with the internet, a lot more people are starting to think this way. Mm -hmm. um, I think the internet, you know, when you open up your phone, you can see people from all sorts of backgrounds uh, doing the same thing, eating delicious food, laughing at the same inane jokes. Um, a lot the same. So yeah, a lot the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We just get hung up on the differences yeah. because the yeah. you know we habituate to the to the the similarities, right? Yeah. And there's another. There may be another dimension to that. Is that you know the more you start thinking about existential questions and global issues, uh, you know the less important those boundaries may seem, right? Because this affects all of us, no matter where we are, no matter what yeah. our nation or what our culture. They're all all affecting all of us. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely something that we yeah. need to. Like uh, uh, something to get past because I yeah. think that's so, one of the biggest challenges. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. I, I I wanted to finish with this uh, last question here. <clears throat> you know, broad experience, a lot of different, a lot of different factors. <laughs> Do you have a time or an experience that really moved you? Really had an impact? Uh, you know, sometimes people have things that they feel were sort of transcendent or just unexplained and it just kind of happened and it really, really made a difference. Uh, so there's three that spring to mind very like that are very different. Um, there's one moment I always remember and it was the first thing that popped up in my mind when you said this and it was when I asked, I was about four or five years old and I asked my dad a question and he said, I don't know. And the fact that my dad didn't know something and the fact that there was things that there were questions unanswered, at, at least from that perspective, just completely blew my mind. Um, and that moment's always stuck with me. Um, so there's, I would say that. Um, on the more spiritual side of things, um, not nothing so much um, when I've been sober, 
Um, but I have experimented with psychedelic substances mm. and one substance in particular, DMT, made me um, firstly obsessed with information, um, information in like the, the physical sense um, and led to like a lot of this, made me go back to university um, and study philosophy. Um, but I, so DMT is the psychedelic substance that's found all throughout um, nature and you can eat it or you can drink it in the form of ayahuasca or various shamanic brews, or you can smoke it. And I smoked it. And um, I, it kind of, you feel like you go to a different place and the experience of wherever you go, like it, it feels like the most familiar place you've ever been in your entire life. It feels like home with a capital H. And you feel, I, I saw this entity or this, this thing that was, it was like um, a grand consciousness. It was like, you know, imagine like I'm a drop in the ocean and this that thing was the ocean. And I got an overwhelming sense of there being information there. Like it was this intelligence, but like the word information st stood out to me. And I cannot square this with my materialistic perspective of the world at all, um, like none, none whatsoever. So that, but I feel it to be true. And because there was this feeling of familiarity that was um, just unreal. Um, and I feel like that was a place I was before I was born. Um, so that really stood out to me and I'm trying to, I think, I think the, the science, I think the science will square with this at some point in the future. Yeah. Um, I just cannot do that now. Yeah. Um, so that was the other big spiritual experience, yeah. uh, I've had, I would say. Well, that's, uh, that's fascinating. I, I had one of, one of my own that's somewhat similar and, and, uh, for me, what was important, it was just that sense of feeling connected to everything. Yep. Everything, everything was connected and yep. uh, I was quoted by a friend as repeating several times or repeatedly everything is everything which didn't didn't contain a whole lot of content uh, but uh, it did capture the feeling of being being connected mm. and and uh, yeah so those those can be very very powerful experiences hard to explain and yeah, and, and one way, uh, actually, I think it, it uh, might be from a guest I have coming up from in the in the future that talked about that as a as a way in which the the constructs of our own human brain, uh, which are ordered and structured and hierarchical and you know and networked and all that stuff, just sort of loosen to the point where you just sense that connection. You know, you, f you feel that connection because you don't have the barriers in your own brain. So maybe that's a way of kind of putting a yeah. putting an explanation around it. Um, yeah, I did an interview with a guy called Adam Saffron, who's at Johns Hopkins doing psychedelics research. He's done a bit on psychedelics, yeah. and yeah. I think that squares with his perspective. He's very yeah, he he speaks about this at a very high level. So I, I do my best to um to follow. But it yeah. does seem like these substances break down patterns and allow you to see more like the raw informational input and to change the, the way you perceive. So breaks down your perceptual filters so that you see things in new ways and in ways that you've never seen them before. And yeah. then you can build new patterns from there. So you can break down old habits and build new habits, normal habits, like, you know, whatever it'd be, if you're smoking or whatever, but also cognitive habits, like the ways, the way you see things. Yeah. And it's interesting that, that the, uh, many of the indigenous cultures that did not have access to the tools and, technologies of modern science to try and make sense of things um, did use those those technologies to try and get access to some higher levels of information is pretty interesting mm. Mm. well it's funny that even the, it looks like the early christians did as well so yeah. 
psychedelics are a religious thing. Yeah. Religions without psychedelics are unusual, like historically yeah. um, anomalous. Yeah. You could say. And there are other ways. There are other ways of getting there. If you if you think about the asceticism of you know some some Buddhist traditions or the meditation as a pathway to that sense of oneness. Um, you know, different traditions have different ways of trying to get to that same mm. place. So that's yeah. interesting. Actually, I do have one more experience that that brings up, and it was after, it was from meditation. I remember I, I've been meditating regularly in the mornings, and one day I meditated. Um, I went down to the, this is, I was in the US on a little trip. I had meditated. I went down to Starbucks. I had a coffee, and I was reading a book, and that's the sentence. It was, one of Joseph Campbell's um, books, I can't remember which one, and I read a sentence yeah. in that, and the sentence produced me to tears and unlocked something in me, and then for the rest of the day, I was walking around ecstatic, just on top mm. of the world. I had never felt this way before, mm. and I think this is how monks feel all the time. Mm. Like, I'm pretty sure I achieved monk mode temporarily, for, <laughs> you know, for about four or five hours. Um, I have no idea what happened, um, but that was a... That was big spiritual experience for me it was, it was yeah. bizarre yeah yeah well that's amazing that's really really cool uh so uh sam thanks for being on the show thanks for just a great conversation thanks for joining us on this episode of making sense of complexity next episode i'll be joined by gary f Bengier, a writer philosopher and technologist the author of the award-winning SF novel, Unfettered Journey, and a board member with the Santa Fe Institute. In the meantime, please explore the websites of our collaborators, Complexity Weekend, Plank Sip, and Talk of Today, and join the conversation on our social media outlets or on spiralinquiry.org. Stay well and have a great week.